Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Voices of Conscience from an Ethical Perspective. Today's Town Hall Forum is originating from Wesley Church in downtown Minneapolis. My name is David Nasby and I will be moderating today's forum. Our speaker is author and historian Iris Chang. Her topic is The Silence of Nanking, Human Rights and World Ethics. Iris Chang first heard the frightening stories as a child growing up in Urbana, Illinois, accounts of unbelievable terror and death. Her immigrant parents told her of the Nanking Massacre, the rape and slaughter of 300,000 Chinese civilians by the Japanese army in 1938. Most Americans were unaware of these atrocities. Ms. Chang's book, The Rape of Nanking, The Forgotten Holocaust of World War II, seeks to change that. Published on the 60th anniversary of the massacre, her book also describes the heroic efforts of a small international community who created a safe zone in Nanking. Iris Chang is the author of Thread of the Silkworm and has written for the New York Times, the Chicago Tribune, and the Associated Press. She has received grants from the National Science Foundation and the Harry S. Truman Library. She is also a recipient of a John T. and Catherine D. MacArthur Foundation Award. Welcome, Iris Chang. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's a great honor for me to come here this afternoon. And I want to thank all of you for coming here to learn about a side to World War II history that some of you may be hearing about for the first time. When we think of World War II history, we usually think of the mushroom clouds over Hiroshima and Nagasaki. We think of D-Day, and we also think of the gas chambers of the Jewish Holocaust. But unfortunately, as Americans, Few of us know the full story of the Pacific Holocaust of World War II, and by this I mean the atrocities committed by the Japanese Imperial Army against millions of Chinese, Southeast Asians, Koreans, Filipinos, and even our own American citizens. During World War II, Japan's invasion of China launched an eight-year war that ultimately killed an estimated 19 million to 35 million Chinese people. During this time, the Japanese military also lured, purchased, or kidnapped hundreds of thousands of Asian women for sexual slavery for their imperial army, women who were subjected to some of the most horrifying experiences inflicted upon military prostitutes in history. I'm going to use this afternoon The Rape of Nanking, the subject of my new book, as just one example to illustrate what the Japanese did in many of the regions that they conquered. I will also show the glaring scars that were left behind, which persist to this very day, and their implication for the future of human rights. Sixty years ago, on December 13, 1937, the Japanese Imperial Army invaded the city of Nanking, which was then the seat of the nationalist government and also the capital of China. And within weeks, the army not only looted and burned this defenseless city, but systematically raped, tortured, and murdered more than 300,000 Chinese civilians. It is difficult for all of us to conceptualize the figure of 300,000 deaths until we put this number into the context of world history. More people died from the rape of Nanking than from the atomic blasts at Hiroshima and Nagasaki combined. In fact, the death toll of Nanking, just one Chinese city alone during six to eight weeks far exceeded the total civilian casualty count of three European countries combined for all of World War II, England, France, and Belgium. But unfortunately, numbers do not tell the full story of Nanking. 
It is impossible for us to measure the degree of torture and suffering that was inflicted upon the innocent civilians. There were stories of people nailed to walls or to boards before being run over by army tanks. There were peace stories also of people being hanged by their tongues on iron hooks or buried waist down in the soil so they could be torn apart by German shepherds. Even small children were not spared the carnage at Nanking. Babies were tossed in the air and bayoneted on the way down or tossed alive into vats of boiling water. The orgy of violence would indeed be so brutal that even the Nazi party members in the city would be shocked. This massacre was not something that was perpetrated in the heat of battle, but rather a cold, systematic massacre that was perpetrated against innocent Chinese civilians and unarmed Chinese POWs who had thrown away their weapons and surrendered after the city fell. The Japanese military had apparently issued a kill-all-captives order at the time, something that may have come as a directive from some of the highest levels of Japanese power. And during the first few days of the massacre, the Japanese soldiers carried out this order by machine-gunning tens of thousands of Chinese men, burying them alive, using them for bayonet practice or decapitation contests, or simply spraying them with gasoline and setting them on fire. Most of these executions were efficient, conducted with assembly line precision. But some men died under the most slow and sadistic and excruciatingly painful circumstances when soldiers turned murder into sport. There were cases of men being skinned alive, crucified, pricked to death by needles, and even cannibalized. So many men would die during those first few days of massacre that the Japanese Imperial Army literally had trouble disposing of all of the bodies. Burial was one method, but they soon ran out of ditches large enough to hold seven or 8,000 bodies at a time. Cremation was another, but the Japanese soon ran out of the gasoline needed to burn the bodies. In the end, most were simply dumped into the Yangtze River, the waters of which ran red with blood from the corpses for days. But the story of the rape of Nanking is not just what happened to the men in the city. After killing most of the men, the Japanese then turned their attention to the women, making the rape of Nanking the single worst mass rape of World War II history at that time, and also the single worst mass rape of world history at that moment. The event pales only in comparison to the wholesale violation of Bengali women by Pakistani soldiers in the 1970s after a failed rebellion. In the city of Nanking, no woman was safe. Soldiers attacked great-grandmothers over the ages of 80, as well as children under the ages of eight. Often their victims were raped in broad daylight in front of hundreds of witnesses. And the army did more than just attack women and children, but mutilated them horribly with tree branches, rods, bayonets, swords, golf sticks, and even lit firecrackers. There were even stories of some of the most defenseless women, pregnant women, who were gang raped before having their fetuses ripped from their bellies. Sons, Chinese sons even, were forced to rape their own mothers and fathers, their own daughters, as other family members were forced to watch. Those who refused were usually killed on the spot. In the end, the Japanese Imperial Army violated more than 20,000 women and girls in the city of Nanking. And some estimate that the figure could be as high as 80,000 women and girls. But again, the full effects of the rape cannot be measured on a tally sheet of statistics because many of the women who endured weeks of gang rape found themselves pregnant afterwards and faced the choice of committing infanticide or rearing half-Japanese children they could never love. And no doubt, many women simply could not make that choice. And for months after the great rape of Nanking, a German diplomat noticed that countless numbers of women were simply taking their own lives by fleeing themselves into the Yangtze River. Unfortunately, the rape of Nanking did more than destroy the lives of individual women in the city. 
but also had far-reaching repercussions for women across Asia. Apparently, the rape of Nanking resulted in an underground system of military prostitution because the attack on women in the city had created such a huge public outcry that the Japanese government sought to control the libido of the army by creating their own prostitution ring, which we now know as the comfort women system. An estimated 200,000 women, most of them Korean, but many also from other Asian countries, were forced to serve in what the Japanese government called facilities of sexual comfort to stop troops from raping women in regions that they controlled in China. Many of these comfort women, some of them still teenagers or even children when captured, were attacked by as many as 20, 30, or 50 men a night, every night, for years during the war. Untold numbers of these women, whom the Japanese called public toilets, took their own lives when they learned their destiny, and others died from disease or murder. Indeed, only one in four comfort women would survive the experience. Decades later, the Japanese government tried to insist that these brothels were run by private entrepreneurs and not the wartime government. But just a few years ago, a Japanese professor by the name of Dr. Yoshiaki Yoshima at Cho University discovered undeniable proof in the Japanese government archives that the entire system was indeed authorized by officials of the Japanese high command. Now, you would think that with such a record of atrocity that the government of Japan would have shown proper remorse a long time ago for the genocide that it perpetrated across Asia. You would think that the government would have paid billions of dollars in reparations and erected monuments in the memory of the victims, or at the very least, passed laws to guarantee the teaching of World War II history to ensure that their crimes would never be forgotten. But unfortunately, the situation is quite the reverse. To this very day, the Japanese government takes no responsibility or very little responsibility for these atrocities, even though the wartime government did give the order to commit them. There have even been politicians and high-ranking members of Japanese parliament who have gone on the record to deny that any of these atrocities happened at all. This is why I believe the story of the rape of Nanking is really the story of two rapes. The first rape happened 60 years ago. The second rape is ongoing, and it is the rape of history and justice. Over the last 60 years, the government of Japan has almost completely escaped the moral and financial responsibility that their counterparts in Germany had to face over and over again. Consider, if you will, the following examples. While the German government have made profuse apologies to their wartime victims, the Japanese government has yet to deliver one sincere apology directly to the survivors of the Nanking massacre or to their families. And while the German government has paid the equivalent of about 60 billion US dollars to their victims in war reparations, and will continue to pay several more billion by the year 2005, the government of Japan has paid close to nothing in war restitution, and certainly not one penny in reparations to the victims of Nanking. Also, the German government is required by law to teach the history of the Jewish Holocaust in their schools. But the Japanese government, far from mandating the study of their World War II aggression in schools, they have openly impeded, through the Ministry of Education, efforts of textbook authors in Japan to do the same, and have even censored details of the Nanking atrocities and other wartime crimes from their school death school textbooks, despite a three-decade-long lawsuit waged against the Ministry of Education by Anaga Saburo, a textbook author and historian. Also, in Germany, it is illegal to openly deny the existence of the Holocaust. But in the country of Japan, legions of professors, filmmakers, journalists, and even leading members of government 
have openly proclaimed that the rape of Nanking and other war atrocities never happened at all, or were minor incidents much overblown. Individuals, those courageous individuals, such as journalists and uh, historians, who have disagreed with this view, have faced ostracism, death threats, and even assassination attempts. For example, a few years ago, the mayor of Nagasaki was shot in the chest merely for stating his belief publicly that Emperor Hirohito bore some responsibility for World War II. And while in Germany, Nazi war criminals are vilified and seen as the source of tremendous national shame, in Japan, Japanese Class A war criminals are worshipped as deities in the Yasukuni Shrine in Tokyo, a practice that many believe are not only morally reprehensible, but of course is the source of enormous anguish to wartime victims across Asia. I believe this is something that would never be tolerated if its practice was parallel practice was uh, performed in Europe. The worship of these Class A war criminals in Japan is, in my view, the moral and political equivalent of moving statues of Hitler and his cronies into the biggest cathedral of Berlin and honoring them as gods. Now, the inevitable question arises, which is, how did all of this happen? Why do differences in post-war behavior loom so large between Japan and Germany? And the answer, I believe, lies in the Cold War. After 1949, after the civil war between uh, the nationalists and the communists in China, neither the People's Republic of China nor the Republic of China in Taiwan wanted to push Japan for apologies or reparations because both governments were competing for Japan's diplomatic recognition and also the economic advantages that would come with it. The United States government also failed to pursue the issue because it saw Japan during the Cold War as a stable base from which to counter the forces of communism in the Soviet Union and in Asia. As a result, many of the worst wartime criminals in Japan escaped prosecution and punishment. Unlike the Nazi leaders of Germany, who were mostly imprisoned, executed, forced to live out the rest of their days as fugitives from the law, or at the very least were forced from power, the entire Japanese royal family, including Emperor Hirohito, was exonerated during the terms of the surrender and held exempt from having to face prosecution or even to testify during the International Military Tribunal of the Far East. Moreover, the entire Japanese wartime bureaucracy was left intact so that those who had plunged the country into war in the first place were permitted to stay in power after the war. Thus, many of those officials were left in a position to, to control what was taught about World War II in schools or what would filter through the media to the Japanese people. Today, the bitter legacy of Japan's World War II past and persistent refusals among the conservative factions of Japan to admit wrongdoing still haunts the island nation and her neighbors, especially during a time of financial crisis when the need for reconciliation is more important than ever. But a revisionist movement that is alive and well in Japan still thrives to this day, a movement to deny all wartime wrongdoing, which exacerbates the old wartime wounds and tensions between Japan and her neighbors. For example, let me just give a few um, instances of what has happened in this revisionist movement this year. In May of this year, a major Japanese studio released the movie Pride, an instant in a lifetime, which depicts Tojo as a hero and martyr, and also implies as well that the rape of Nanking never happened at all. This film has become the top grossing movie in Japan this year. But when another movie about the Nanking massacre, called Nanking 1937, 
was shown in a Japanese theater this year. Extremists not only issued death threats to the theater owner's family, but slashed up his screens with a knife. Meanwhile, in June of this year, six Japanese academics, some of them extremely prominent and respected academics, held a conference in Tokyo to deny the entire existence of the Nanking Massacre. Some even insisted that it was the Chinese people who did all the looting, raping, and torturing in the city, and that it was the Chinese who had unilaterally massacred the Japanese up to that point, and that civic life had actually improved once the Japanese army reached the city. Unfortunately, a mountain of evidence that exists on the massacre, including archival and do documentation and oral history interviews, in four different languages, English, German, Chinese, and Japanese. All of this evidence has not deterred extremists in Japan from dismissing it all as propaganda or as forgeries. The spin strategies of these revisionists are no different from those of the Holocaust deniers in Germany or the Armenian genocide deniers in Turkey, the latter of which include, as in Japan, powerful members of government academia and business. Unfortunately, these revisionists continue to ma maintain extremely influential positions in Japanese government. And they continue to remain as a force to be reckoned with. But to Japan's credit, there has been a vocal minority of activists who have stood out to uh, to speak out about Japan's wartime past. A multi-ethnic grassroots movement has emerged internationally over the last few years to combat these attempts to rewrite history. A movement that includes not only Chinese Americans and Chinese nationals, Koreans, Filipinos, Jewish Americans, but also many Japanese Americans Japanese Canadians, and Japanese nationals who recognize that human rights issues transcend those of nationality and ethnicity. This summer, scholars, activists, and veterans from Japan participated in a trans-Pacific video conference sponsored by the Simon Wiesenthal Center of Tolerance to speak candidly about their country's wartime aggression. Also, earlier this year, a delegation of some 10 Japanese lawyers and physicians toured five North American cities to discuss their lawsuit against the Japanese government and their crusade to seek compensation for wartime victims. It is truly gratifying to see the efforts of a vocal minority of Japanese nationals who are united by conscience and the conviction that basic facts cannot be denied, no matter what the political agenda. In light of all these facts, I believe that Japan at present needs to do four things in order to redeem itself to the world community. First of all, it must give a sincere and unequivocal apology to all surviving wartime victims instead of the vague expressions of remorse that it has made in the past. In the past couple of weeks, Japan has already made the historic step of apologizing to the South Korean government in a written apology which was unprecedented in history. And they have promised to deliver an apology, a similar apology, to the People's Republic of China next month. Secondly, Japan, Japan needs to stop censoring or whitewashing its wartime crimes in school textbooks. I believe that Japan cannot move forward as a nation until it educates its young about the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth about its wartime aggression, starting with Nanking. A country that refuses to disclose basic historical facts to its people, a country that rewrites history for its people, is a country that will jeopardize its very future as a democracy, as well as dooming itself to repeating the mistakes of the past. Thirdly, I believe Japan should pay in full the reparations that it owes to its wartime victims. There is no reason why Japan should be judged by standards any different from any other civilized nation. 
and an era when even the Swiss have pledged billions of dollars to pay for the money stolen from Swiss bank accounts. Allowing a Japan to evade its responsibilities becomes a new assault on its wartime victims, let alone the conscience of humanity. Unfortunately, the process of international law has less to do with justice than the state of international politics. At the moment, the survivors are dying, and the glacier pace of the legal system makes it unlikely that any of them will see a penny in reparations in their lifetime. For that reason, the legal battle for reparations is much less important than the preservation of history and memory. Of such an effort could warn future generations the extent to which unbridled human evil thrives under a tissue-thin veneer of civilization. We must be ever vigilant to ensure that accurate records of all war crimes be preserved for a global audience. Which brings me to my fourth point. Japan should open all of her wartime archives for review by an international coalition of historians. Most of these archives are under lock and key now after the US government in the 1950s mysteriously returned to Japan the high-level documentation that, Jap that American occupation forces had seized from that country a decade earlier. I think that we as human beings need to work together to ensure that such a repository of information is protected and also exposed for the world public. Just as Steven Spielberg has created an in ambitious historical program to record the testimony of Holocaust survivors, I believe that historians worldwide should gather eyewitness accounts of the Pacific side of World War II through an international oral history videotape project. Such a project would not only unite scholars from around the world, but also create a richer archive of primary sources for future books, documentaries, and feature films that could protect victims from being written out of history altogether by future revisionists. We need such a repository of history to remind ourselves constantly of the human potential for evil. It must be stressed that Japan is not uniquely capable of these kinds of atrocities, nor the first country that has evaded punishment for their crimes. We fool ourselves when we declare that genocide and atrocity is a unique aberration in the history of mankind. This is not an isolated incident or some deadly flaw of one culture, but a universal condition of human nature. The 20th century has been the bloodiest century of all time. And in this century alone, we have seen not only attempts to exterminate entire races through the Holocaust and the Armenian Genocide, but the wholesale mil massacre of millions by dictators like Stalin, Mao, and Pol Pot. And as we approach the next millennium, we would like to believe that it couldn't happen again, but statistic after statistic cry out to us that they could. In the entire course of human history, some 60 to 100 million people have been butchered by their own governments alone. That in just sheer numbers alone, is as if a nuclear war has already happened. I think the best antidotes to genocide are the forces of truth, conscience, and democracy. By honestly viewing the rape of Nanking as a cautionary tale in history, the Chinese, the Americans, the Japanese, and other Asian countries can start to work together towards the difficult task of remembrance, towards a goal that would promote not hatred, but healing, and towards dialogue that could help the world help avoid recreating the conditions that gave war, rise to war in the first place. Otherwise, history will repeat itself. History is already repeating itself. We still see brutality in the world reminiscent of the rape of Nanking, mass murder, and institutional violence against women have been used by militaries and controlling elites in countries like Bosnia, Rwanda, and most recently, Indonesia, where rape is used as a weapon to terrorize native Chinese women, as well as to threaten 
human rights volunteers and their families from testifying about these state-sponsored crimes to the UN and to the media. These horrors should never be forgotten nor denied, not at the peril of human civilization itself. As members of the human race, we all have a moral responsibility to remember such crimes against humanity, to force countries like to Japan to face up to these crimes, and to try to prevent atrocities like the rape of Nanking from ever happening again. Thank you so much for your time this afternoon. Thank you, Iris Chang. Thank you. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum in downtown Minneapolis. I am David Nasby, moderator of today's forum. Our speaker today is Iris Chang, who has just spoken on the topic, The Silence of Nanking, Human Rights and World Ethics. While the ushers collect the questions from our audience here, I would like to take this opportunity to remind you that the next Westminster Town Hall Forum will be on Thursday, November 12. Our speaker will be Craig Kielberger, the 15-year-old founder of the Free the Children, an international campaign to educate and create alternatives to abusive child labor. Ms. Chang, uh, I think we may begin to do some questions. It's such an international court. However, um, it, it may be very difficult, I think, to, to establish such a court hearing. As I mentioned before in my speech, I think international law has a lot less to do with uh, justice than it does with money and international politics. So therefore, I think that we should count on the efforts of individuals rather than to, uh, to place all of the responsibility for, uh, for uh, bringing certain perpetrators to justice through governments and through uh, the international legal system. Um, I think one person can make a tremendous difference, often just by speaking the truth, by documenting these atrocities in a book. But all of you in the audience today also can play a very important role in ensuring that these crimes against humanity are not forgotten. Uh, right now, I, the Justice Department is collecting names of war criminals, Japanese war criminals, for their watch list. There are more than 100 uh, Japanese war criminals who are not permitted to come into this country, and many more of these perpetrators are actually being sued, I think, uh, through uh, lawsuits uh, designed by human rights activists. Um, but what's important is to, to realize is that the Justice Department really needs the help of civilians uh, and, and you know, interested individuals such as yourself to gather information on these individuals. So I really think that by, by you know, working uh, at a grassroots level that, and, and by publishing books, serious historical books on the subject, ensuring that this, these books are available in libraries, that can make a tremendous difference in the world towards perhaps bringing these people to justice. Thank you. Are the only uh, written records of the Nanking Massacre written by the 27 Westerners who remained in the city? Absolutely not. There are literally thousands and thousands of primary source documents on the subject of the massacre that were generated contemporaneously with the event in four different languages, in fact. Uh, English, but those records written by the, some of the Westerners, German, uh, also Chinese and Japanese. There are uh, Chinese eyewitness reports. There are, are, in fact, hundreds of people in Nanking right now who can testify about the massacre. There's, there are eyewitnesses who are still alive in China. But many of them kept diaries and photographs. Um, and uh, there are also government archival records in China on this massacre, uh, including burial records uh, that tally up the number of people who were buried in different locations in Nanking. And in Japan, too, there are diaries of some of the veterans, uh, the perpetrators of these crimes. Um, 
and, and as well as government documentation as well. So um, there's, there's a lot of information out there. Also, this was this was world news at the time. So the reporters from the New York Times, Chicago Daily News, uh, AP, Reuters, uh, they were in Nanking as it happened, and their stories hit the front pages of major newspapers, and Japanese foreign correspondents were in the city as well. Why has it taken so long for this story to be told in the United States? Sixty years is a long time. I think there are many reasons, and I think part of it has to do with politics, another reason has to do, I think, with demographics. Um, in this country, I think that perhaps it could have been, uh, there was, there's more of a Eurocentric viewpoint of, of, of history, uh, and there wasn't as much interest in the, the Pacific side of World War II. Um, there's no shortage of, of primary source documentation on it, on the subject, but for some reason, historians in this country simply neglected uh, to write about the Pacific War, and it's not just for the rape of Nanking, but other subjects as well. And demographically, I think it took a while before uh, the Chinese population uh, to, um, to mature as, as a political force, and many of the, uh, the Chinese Americans who came to this country in the 1960s, such as my parents, uh, to study at Harvard. They, they were not in any position to document this uh, because of their English language skills uh, were not up to par, and also because they were pretty much struggling to, to establish themselves in scientific professions in this country. So it took a whole new generation, I think, of Chinese Americans and Asian Americans to, to uh, come of age and, and to, uh, to bring this to the forefront of the, of the American people. And uh, also, I think for many years, for decades, China as a country was simply sealed off to the West. And it was very difficult to do any kind of scholarly research in China. It's only been in recent years that scholars have begun to go to China to, to interview the survivors themselves. So there's no shortage of information on the subject in, in Chinese. There are many books written, but it took a while for this information to proliferate uh, to the American public because no English language account of the massacre had ever really been written. Tell us a little bit about the impact of these stories from your family on you as a, as a child and growing young woman. Well, my parents, uh, who grew up during the Sino-Japanese War, told me the story of the rape of Nanking when I was a little girl. They, of course, only knew some of the details. They did not know the full story. But they did tell me that the Yangtze River had literally turned red with blood because so many corpses had been dumped into the river at the time. Now, what stunned me as a small girl growing up in the Midwest was that I could not find a single book on the subject in English um, I, in my local library. I couldn't find a mention of this in my world history textbooks. So I really, even at that age, I think I, I saw a real need for, um, uh, you know, heightening awareness of, of the Pacific side of World War II. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum in downtown Minneapolis. Our speaker today is Iris Chang, who has just spoken on the topic, The Silence of Dan King, Human Rights and World Ethics. What was the uh, hardest thing you had to do when you researched this topic? I think the most difficult thing was having to read through all those thousands of pages of accounts of atrocities that were, that were recorded in diaries and also in letters and government reports. And um, I remember having to read through them. And as, as a woman, I think it was the, the accounts of the, the rape and also of the mutilation of women after rape was, was very, very difficult for me to read. And um, I remember literally sitting in front of my computer, sometimes shaking convulsively, because I, I just could not believe what I had just read. And there were days when I could not eat anything because I had lost my appetite entirely. So I lost a tremendous amount of weight. I also lost patches of hair in the process of writing the book. Uh, the, the whole process actually affected my editor at the publishing house as well. She lost 10 pounds just editing this book alone. Certain passages she could not even read and she refuses to look at the photographs. So um, it was very hard for all of us, but you know what kept me going was the knowledge that 
the information, the truth about the victims will event would eventually reach the world public, and that was what was important to me. How long did it take you to research and write the book? Two years. And uh, where, where were you able to gather the hidden information? A lot of this information had never been published, but they were available in large archives, like the National Archives at Washington, D.C., the Yale Divinity School Library, which has a very large China missionary collection. Some of this was already in Chinese government archives. Some of the information, however, was in the homes of private individuals and had never reached in archives. For example, I tracked down the descendants of the Nazi hero of Nanking, John Raba, and learned from his granddaughter that he had kept a 2,000-page diary of the massacre. And this became world news, the discovery of these diaries, even before my book was published. The New York Times, in December of 1996, devoted its entire third page to the fact that the Raba diaries, the German records of the rape of Nanking, had, had suddenly surfaced. Uh, there, are, there were other uh, diaries of Germans who are in the city as well. And they, every month that goes by, I get new information, letters and old photographs from other victims or descendants of victims of the massacre. So um, it's, it's an ongoing historical process. Do you envision a documentary or a movie being made of the... Uh of this event uh, based on your research? Well, there's already a documentary available on the Rape of Nanking produced by uh, Christine Choi and Nancy Tong called In the Name of the Emperor. But Lou Rita's documentary on the Rape of Nanking I think will be aired on the History Channel uh, within the next few months. Um, and that is largely based on my book and other uh, books that have actually come out on the subject of war atrocities in the last few uh, months, in fact. Um, right now, there is a lot of interest in Hollywood right now in turning my book into a film. But this is my first exposure to Hollywood. I don't really know what will happen, but I do hope that, uh, that this is eventually going to be made into a feature film because no matter how hot a best-selling book is, even though this book was on the New York Times bestseller list for five months, it cannot match the impact that a major feature film could, could have. And, uh, and so several major studios are already interested at this point. What, in your opinion, will be the most difficult or challenging problem, either ideological or cultural, facing Chinese Americans in dealing with China in the future, drawing from your experience as a Chinese American who has returned to China? Well, um, I would think that the the most difficult thing would be the, the political process, really. And, um, and it's, it's interesting to note, actually, that when some Chinese Americans were trying to do research on the rape of Nanking itself a few years earlier, that they ran into many obstacles in the, the People's Republic of China. So um, I think, though, that sustained you know, media pressure, sustained uh, historical inquiry into important subjects, and political pressure would eventually, I think, bring about uh, a, gr a greater awakening of human rights in, in uh, China. How does the Chinese government perceive the rape of Nang your book? Actually, they're very supportive, and um, this is not the case for my first book, Thread of the Silkworm, which is the story of the, Red the, the founder of the Red Chinese Missile Program and how he was falsely accused of being a spy when he was in this country as a professor at Caltech and was deported to China. That book, the first one, was banned in China, uh, in the PRC. But the second one is to be published in the PRC as well as it's already been published in the Republic of China in Taiwan. And uh, to the credit of the People's Republic of China, they have come forward to um, like criticize the Japanese ambassador to the U.S. when he denounced me uh, at a press conference and claimed that this book was erroneous, even though he couldn't come up with a single example of any inaccuracies, even when, you know, questioned on the matter by the Simon Wiesenthal Center and my publisher and, and numerous reporters. Um, also, they issued a, a, a pretty scathing protest letter when those six Japanese revisionists stepped forward to personally attack me, but also to claim that the rape in Nanking never happened. And the PRC said that, uh, uh, that there are mountains and mountains of evidence on the rape of Nanking, and anyone who denies that uh, has no respect for history whatsoever. 
What, from the research that you have done, vast research, what, what was the character of the Japanese regime that spawned the rape of Nankin? Well, it was an intensely militaristic culture, and one in which the emperor was worshipped as the living god, and one in which individual lives, even individual Japanese life, was not valued. I think this is why Japanese soldiers found it so easy to brutalize the Chinese victims in Nanking. One Japanese soldier told me, a man who had actually committed some of these acts in Nanking, that it was easy for him to torture Chinese people and to take Chinese life because the army did not even value individual Japanese life. Uh, all life next to the emperor was considered meaningless, and these men were taught that loyalty was as heavy as a mountain, and their own lives were as light as a feather, and that the greatest honor for a Japanese soldier was to come home from war dead. Your uh, next, uh, one of the questioners says, your next book is supposed to be about the Chinese in America. Mm -hmm. How much did you study Asian American history or literature while you were in high school or college? Was that a focus? Um, I took many different kinds of courses in, in college. In fact, I started off as a math and computer science major. So um, I, I took some Asian classes, but I think this is going to be a real learning experience for me. I am very excited about, about writing my third book, and I think that I'm going to discover a lot of stories about the Chinese epic experience in this country that was not really uh, previously known before, so I'm really looking forward to that. One of the questioners uh, asked, do you have plans to join in with the Shoah Foundation in creating that large archive you talked about? I may talk to them, actually, to see if they would be willing to give um, uh, some of the human rights activists advice on, on how to create this oral history videotape project. Um, the, the person who is in charge of the Shoah Foundation actually uh, spent a whole day with me when I was speaking at the Holocaust Museum. And uh, it was, I, I already had uh, some communication with, with people who are engaged in the Shoah Foundation research. And uh, I have to say that uh, I'm really delighted that the Jewish community has been so supportive of the efforts of human rights activists to um, promote awareness of this, such as the Simon Wiesenthal Center, and also the Holocaust Museum itself, which, when they invited me to speak, drew the largest audience of any lecture in the history of the museums. So I was really overwhelmed by the support I saw from that community. Are there any real examples of reconciliation after the Holocaust of history that might serve as a model for us? Is, uh, and then that's followed up with, is forgiveness necessary? Is it possible? I think if forgiveness is a very important step in the healing process, but if forgiveness cannot come without a, a genuine apology from the, the perpetrators. Otherwise, I don't think the whole dialogue of uh, of, of healing can really begin. And that's why I really think that a sincere and unequivocal apology would be so healing for the Japanese government and Japan as a society because it would really permit themselves to separate themselves from the acts of the perpetrator 60 years ago and move forward as a nation. Can you tell us something about germ warfare in Unit 731? Absolutely. Um, the Japanese Imperial Army conducted numerous and horrendous medical experiments on Chinese civilians and also on American POWs. In Unit 731, which was based in Manchuria, Japanese doctors performed vivisection without anesthesia on both Chinese and American POWs. And also in Nanking, after the massacre, they also tortured people through medical experiments in a secret medical lab codenamed EI-1644, in which 10 people were killed uh, weekly in a lab. Some of, some of them women and children simply kidnapped off the street. And, um, and actually, they were, uh, they were actually sometimes fed poisons or injected with all kinds of lethal gases and, and, uh, and, and then dissected alive as well. And what's 
very unfortunate is that is the, US, the U.S. government's complicity in covering up some of these medical atrocities. If many of you are hearing about Unit 731 and EI 1644 for the first time, it is because the American government actually exonerated the Japanese doctors involved in these experiments in exchange for their medical data. And these Japanese doctors went back to Japan, where they assumed powerful positions in Japanese academia, industry, and government. Some of them became even top-ranking executives or even the founders of the infamous Green Cross Blood Processing Plant, which a few years ago was caught selling HIV-tainted blood to Japanese hemophiliac patients. And you see, I think that's why American complicity in covering up these, war, these medical atrocities has far-reaching repercussions that has affected Japanese victims as well, not just Chinese victims and American victims, but also many of these poor Japanese hemophiliac patients who were never told about the, the backgrounds of, of the leading members of the Japan's medical establishment. Now, those of you who want to learn more about this should read Sheldon Harris's book, Factories of Death, which described the whole conspiracy uh, to cover up these crimes. To this very day, a lot of these records in American custody are not released to the public. And the Simon Wiesenthal Center, in particular Rabbi Cooper, who has been instrumental in forcing the U.S. government to release millions of documents on Nazi war crimes, which are just starting to be released now, in 1988, he is now going to force the U.S. government, along with other uh, human rights activists to open up all of their documentation on germ warfare, on, on, the, on Unit 731. I think it's high time that the American people were exposed to the truth. Thank you, Ms. Chang, for your thoughts. Mm -hmm.